welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners, as well as never forgetting our beloved, that's right, I said beloved, beloved podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into The Green Majority here today. And uh, I'm actually, we've got action-packed guest show. I'm just going to pass you right to Stefan and Dave and Lauren. Take it away, guys. Thank you so much. So yeah, we're, we're covering a, a whole bunch of different things, actually. It's a perky, perky morning. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, well, actually, in Toronto, it is actually quite, uh, it's quite dreary here in the city. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's gray. It's gray stuff. It's a great day. Okay. It's a great day. Oh, I said um, gray. It's a gray day. That makes way more sense, given the content of what we're covering in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're doing a, doing a bit of a, a conversation around different, uh, different understandings of the cultural moment that we're in. Yeah, yeah, I might say framing of the problem from an academic perspective. Okay. Framing. All right, we're, we're doing some framing, or at least discussion of other framings more know. accurately. I don't know. It's a dry and tepid word. All right, that's true. Uh, it's it's going to be far more fun than the word framing. That's what we promise. <laughs> um, uh, to, as, a, as a quick uh, f- little bit of news uh, before we get into this conversation, uh, if you hadn't noticed, the election was called uh, this week, or, or, the, or the writ was drawn up, if you want to be, if you are listening to the in the, the 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 pedantic arguments about how to say whether how our elections are called in this country. The writ was drawn up. Yes, uh, you, if you ever want to annoy uh, people on Twitter, say the writ was dropped. People on Twitter for hate that. The writ was dropped. Yes, you've just now now <laughs> we're going to get hate hate hate, Dave. I like, it's I like that a lot get. actually. I yeah, really, I really like that. Well, <laughs> it's too late. So it was drawn up already, um, and so we, and we and then we had the first leaders debate, which of course Justin Trudeau missed, and uh, climate change protesters did not. Uh, uh, they were uh, direct. They were made some noise and really, I guess they welcomed. Uh, it was is is the word I'd go with. Uh, the climate all the, change protesters were welcomed. No, no, they welcomed oh, the yeah. uh, the the leaders as they arrived to the debate. <laughs> it, w- it was the warm up crew. Yes. They were getting everyone excited. It's like the um, uh, cheerleaders. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, but instead, cheering for you know actual action on climate change. Boo! Uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, and there were and there will be continuing. Uh, actions as we move forward, but yes, the the first leaders debate already had uh, oh about twenty two minutes of discussion on climate, which uh, is a you know. Do you know uh, how many protesters were there? Uh, about a hundred. Mm. You know, given given the the, the relative short uh, short turnaround, it's, uh, it's a good number of good number of people, and uh, of course, uh, only three of the leaders are there because Justin Trudeau has decided he only wants to go to two debates, and none of the debates are about climate change because mm. apparently we are currently worse than CNN. Which honestly is a bar I did not think we'd drop below. Hmm. Um, but but anyways, uh, before uh, Lauren, I want to curious if you have any thoughts on that, or if not, we'll jump right into this uh, very exciting framing. Um, you know, I didn't watch the leadership debate tonight because I opted to take myself to the symphony, and it was a glorious two hours of not thinking about the election at <laughs> all. And then, of course, I walked out and I got on Twitter, and it was just like. A nightmare hellscape of 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 all kinds of hot takes and quote tweets and stuff like that. Um, yeah, uh, seeing the activists outside of the taping were fantastic. Um, seeing them actually like get FaceTime on city TV was really really great, and hearing their words and their wisdom and seeing their energy was fantastic. So like for me, that was the highlight of the night. Um, I yeah, a lot of a lot of the leadership wasn't really saying anything new. Um, from what I understand, Elizabeth May made Jagmeet and Andrew kind of look like children who didn't really know what they were talking about. But that's understanding that, I mean, she's a leader who's 
who's been in power in her party for something like 25 years now and understands the policy backwards and forwards and they simply don't have her experience. Um, yeah, from what I understand, there were some there were some highlights from Jagmeet, which is great. Um, and I honestly don't have anything new to say about Sheer. <laughs> yeah. for, for the next six weeks, right. that's all I have to say about him. Right. Yeah. Well, we we will of course get actually into the, in the into the weeds of the policy discussion uh, of of all four uh, major political parties in uh, in our October fourth show. So uh, then that will be after the, the the leadership debate, which will include Justin Trudeau. Uh, no, wait, no, that'll be that, wait, that'll be before the leadership debate. It'll be after the hundred climate debates, which are on October third. So if you want to check those out, do check those out. But uh, let's let's jump into uh, into this conversation, Dave. So yeah, uh, we're just going to look at the thoughts of uh, Mr. Rupert Reed, a uh, British academic who's uh, beating to spit fire on the environmental front. Mm. So Rupert Reed is a philosopher and spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, who has begun to give talks around the UK regarding what he sees as the inevitable end of our civilization. He lists three possible outcomes of the climate crisis. One, a complete collapse with no society remaining. Two, a collapse followed by a successor civilization able to survive in some way. And three, we save ourselves by utterly transforming our society to the point where it is unrecognizable. Thus, he argues that civilization as we know it is over since solving the climate crisis requires changing everything. So he believes that we need to think seriously about the possibility of a partial collapse, after which some small population is able to carry on, but also that we need to do literally everything we can immediately to open up the tiny possibility of successfully transforming ourselves in the nick of time. And this, in a way even more profound and unprecedented than the agricultural revolution. Taking seriously the probability of collapse is the foundation of his argument against nuclear, since he says there can be no guarantee that we will be able to keep the reactors and the spent fuel rods cool, which would then catch fire and burn toxic smoke, imperiling future societies for years and years. He therefore argues that it is particularly crazy to build nuclear plants near the seas, which we know are rising. To me, it's obvious that having the society collapse is worse than future people not being able to go to certain places, and that... Uh, therefore, nuclear could still make sense, but I also understand that nuclear power can't solve a hunger crisis. Central to Reed's argument is that the industrial growth model has failed, and that we need to rapidly scale back our consumption of everything. Part of what is needed, he says, is what he dares to label a spiritual awakening regarding what it is, actu- regarding what it is that is actually important to us, what the core things are that we actually value. He claims that these can boil down to relationships and community. In saying that the industrial growth society is a failure, and not all that good for us anyway, he accepts that certain goods like modern medicine and the internet should be prioritized in terms of what aspects of our current society might remain, but also that the situation is so inconceivably dire that we have to be willing to face these outrageously difficult questions. What he and others in the New Rebellion are arguing for first, therefore, is for everyone to begin mourning, to emotionally connect with the science to a very degree, uh, to a very deep degree of despair, or grief, or terror, and then to slow down and to think carefully and clearly about this yawning abyss. After which we will be, we will be able to act rationally and authentically towards transformational change. <clears throat> so, he highlights two kinds of preparations. 
adapting to our coming fate, and the heroic attempt to prevent that coming fate. He starts by saying, as has been said on this show, specifically by Lauren, that the Paris Agreement won't save us, pointing out that the self-imposed targets set by nations, even if met perfectly, would still bring us to a catastrophic three degrees of global warming. But he adds that economic concerns are probably going to trump those targets, and the IPCC consistently underestimates the problem. Therefore, he says that on the realistic Paris trajectory, we're probably headed for four degrees or five degrees of global overheating. That is incompatible with industrial growth-based society. But then he adds something strange. He says that the Paris goals presuppose using reckless geoengineering techniques, and not just sucking carbon out of the air, but also the other weirder stuff like shooting mirrors into space. He says that all of these, including carbon sequestration, are technologies that don't exist, and even if they did, we shouldn't use them. Our governments are thus diligently building our doom and are no longer legitimate. So he lists seven things we need to do. One, wake up and freak out and get everyone else to do so as well. Two, work to transform our society, including through transformative adaptation like building wetlands and mangroves instead of seawalls, which are carbon intensive, and creating the kind of flexible society able to move with the constant changes of the very long emergency that we're just at the beginning of. Three, accept that this could fail and think about deep adaptation. This involves asking questions like, if it does collapse, how can we make sure that it doesn't spiral downward? Four, feel your anger, feel your terror and your grief and despair. Five, rebel against the powers that be with nonviolent direct action, since, while other efforts are important, they won't move us quickly enough. Six, discuss this openly in order to process it. And seven, stop and pause in order to take this all in. Here he quotes Paul Kingsnorth, the kind of man who is lampooned by those who argue that this gloomy outlook is anti-working class and anti-life, who says, quote, There is an abyss opening up before us. It challenges everything we know about our culture and nature. We need to look into it and concentrate on what we can see. Reed finishes by arguing that we need to bring our whole selves into facing this future. Our emotions and our reason and our skills, but also our existential ideas, about who and what we think we are. And here he waxes poetic, saying, quote, Our ecological perception, our psycho-spiritual awakening, and our socio-political uprising are all aspects of the same process. The arising consciousness rises to meet what's wrong. All right. So, uh, so I, the, there's a... One quick thing I want to flag here before uh, throwing uh, throwing to you, Lauren, and it's this it's this incredibly difficult line uh, that must be walked right now, um, and it's it's to maintain a, um, an, a an abundance mindset. So to maintain the belief and the knowledge that everyone can have enough, and that we can survive and thrive. Um, in, in, in our future, while also uh, sort of admitting to ourselves the, what the science is saying, which is really what, what Reed lays out here. Um, and, and there's this, like, it is, 
I think it requires a, a complete. It requires actually a, a deconstruction of maybe one of the things further back in our brains around how we understand what a good life is. Uh, but but without that, with, but, but, but without that, you, you, you fall into a, a number of, of traps uh, around around um, really around the idea that if there's not enough, then we must switch to more uh, re, uh, you know uh, oppressive and uh, you, the, the scarcity mindset will be used to justify injustice and oppression, right? And so there's you ha- there's a there's a conversation that has to be that there's there's a way to move forward, but I think it actually requires a, a further deconstruction in our brains about what a good life is that lets us get there. But it's it's a it's a it's a thing I want to bring into this conversation. But what could we allow ourselves to do in order to attempt to fix the problem? Like 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 the 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 worst things that we could cause through our attempts to fix it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like like the yeah the I think the other side of this is yeah acknowledging sort of where we could move the world in in towards a uh, what it would still be a, a destructive world, but like towards a much more uh, or towards a world where there's you know where where humans are the are the major oppressor, right? Uh, which is you know the world we live in today, but like to a to an extreme level. Um, but but Lauren, I want to I want to throw to you for thoughts. Yeah, I I think. I think we're maybe on the same page. I'm curious to hear what you eventually have to say about this, but I, because I, I don't disagree with sort of uh, Mr. or Dr. Re, or Rupert's uh, seven <laughs> sort of his action points is to sort of like change everything mindset. I, I don't disagree with that. Where I do find myself um, finding fault in his arguments and, and this feels weird because I, I, I normally sort of find myself on the side of, of the people that, that, that media or the general public considers to be the doomsayers. But in this case, I don't think I do. I, I don't know that, that this philosopher's sort of disaster-centric discourse is actually what a rhetoric should consist of. Because in, in my mind, similar to sort of what you were getting at, I think, um, Stefan, around sort of like touching on the disaster, but also like focusing on like the sort of like possibilities for, for a good life and abundance, uh, fear in my experience and from what I understand doesn't win hearts and minds and fear kind of drives exactly the sort of like reckless geoengineering that, that he talks about and, and fear and like this freaking out that he calls for us to do results in terrible things. It results in eco-fascism. It results in a distrust of one another and for other cultures. Um, it results in closed borders and, and nationalism. And though I don't advocate against sort of this deep feeling that he wants people to be doing, this sort of like mining yourself for your for your grief and, and that fear and that loss that we're all experiencing or, or will be experiencing. I don't advocate against that or, 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 or the rebelling, of course. I'm so in support of nonviolent direct action. Um, but but something about the emotional thread that sort of runs through his arguments feels kind of off base to me. And and I think a lot of it comes from like this, like demanding that people grieve and halt their life and gaze into the abyss is like, in my mind, sort of unhelpful and unrealistic because like, I'm sorry, not everyone is an Oxford graduate philosophy professor. Um, and, and I know many people think the world would be a better place if it was, but, but people have to keep on living and we have to keep on functioning and we have to keep moving ahead. And, and I think sometimes if we, if we gaze too far into that abyss, it turns into nihilism really, really quick. Um, and, and, and honestly, like when I was reading through some of this, some of this honestly just feels like it should be in the pages of an ad busters from 2010. Like I, 
I, I don't know. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't disagree with his sort of seven action points and the change everything ethos and the like rise up and rebel and like let's try to build a better future. But this this vein of, of fear and deep, deep grief that you that like there's the risk of people just spiraling into is I don't think helpful. I also don't think it's helpful that he openly distrusts what the IPCC puts out so far. Like, mm. we need to always be centering that science and that peer-reviewed literature that we know to be true and we know to be fact. And if we're calling that into question, we're allowing people on the right to call it into question even more. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, and and I think you 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 highlight um, something that actually I really like about we're gonna in the third segment of this of this broadcast we're gonna get back uh, to some uh, to a to a, a manbiot um, uh, piece and thing about which I think uh, in some ways uh, gives a better or more maybe more in my mind uh, useful uh, framing for what we could imagine this sort of step forward to be um, because. There is, you know, because I, I really what's interesting is that there's like just so clearly uh, a set of people who who identify with just this uh, overt fear uh, of what's happening. And and I think, you know, I am one of those people. But I think there's a lot of people who, who sort of get who get hit that one thing. And then what they really need is everyone else to experience that fear. You know, it's it's partially in part why I actually think that um, that talking about this uh, openly is is useful because it in some ways I've talked about previously about how our society we live in is just so gaslighting everyone about how everything's okay, right? Like when you walk outside and everyone's just existing as if nothing's going on, that's really really difficult to, to experience if you are the per, you know if you're the person who's like reading and re, you know reading up on the stuff and is, is needs wants to shake everyone and be like we should be freaking out, which is really what comes through here. And there's a lot of people who are in that particular space, but but I think you're but I but I think you're right. I think where 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 we have to be, um, because of the speed at which we need to move forward, and the and the and the organization we need to bring we need to bring together towards this moving forward, is is that light at the end of the tunnel? You know, we have to have that that vision um, for what that next world looks like in our hands. Bef- and then we need to start running towards that vision and, 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 and deal with these obstacles as we go. But the vision, I think, of the, of the future where we have redefined the good life, where we have addressed these problems, I think has to be core to the movement um, be- or, else, or else we're stoked or else we're because that, that leaves people with hope. Right. That leaves people with with a with a, with intention that for that. That is, I find, motivating. Um, yeah, the a much more broad-based motivation than a uh, than sort of the 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 scare. Now, I, I uh, now the, the scare also is, is I think necessary because it actually it is currently identifying the reality, right? Like you know, there's a level of that too. But if- I must admit that I am persuaded though by his notion that uh, and contention that now is the time for authenticity. Hmm. If the science is real, then. Uh, you know, telling the truth about it is necessary. Oh, and yeah. To, and, to th- and to think that there's like a broad psychological framework in which we can place a lot of people to say, oh, they're going to be uh, paralyzed by this, I don't think is necessarily helpful. But also I think he, he's, he's in a sense as well saying that the, the Oxford, the, 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 the privileged people are the ones who are not freaking out. The privileged people are the ones who have been accustomed to freaking out. So in a sense, that's his audience, I think. 
If anything, it shows that he's so unaware that he doesn't, in his Oxford Tower, that he's so aware that a considerable amount of poor people world over are already freaking out. <laughs> I think it shows his academic isolation a little bit to no, even I say No, I think that. he's speaking directly to his audience. He knows right. who he's talking to. Right, he's these talking are, to the, to the, these are, the Oxford These are privileged elite. British people. Right, right. And, and I think there's value in that. And, and I think to me, this goes back to what we talked about last week, um, which is, and I, and I think that this is uh, maybe the, the larger sort of thing, is that there's... The I, I do think that a reckoning on the truth of the science is necessary. Um, I, but then I also think that once you hit that reckoning, the you have there's the second set of like who is then building the next future. And I think that the I, and I think that people will be motivated by both sides of this. And I think you, you need some you need a set of people working very very hard to get people to reckon with it. And then you need a bunch of people very very hard working to get, to solve the problem. And I think that that those two. Uh, where you find yourself in those two things, I, I don't think there's anything uh, necessarily um, like I think there's value in, in, in fighting for both. There's value in trying to get everyone to understand the actual problem and then also being ready to build the next future. Um, but we are uh, moving towards a music break. Um, so, Lauren, I want to give you a chance to sort of jump back in. Yeah, I would say there's a, there's, there's value in fighting for both. And, and, I, and I do sort of agree with the whole idea that we have to be like radical in our candor and, and like brutally honest and, and like highlight authenticity, but also like we, we can't expect everybody to react to these situations the same way. And we can't demand deep grief and, and mourning from every single person because like on a very real human level, that's not how everybody processes things and not everybody processes things on the same timeline. And if the natural response somebody has to really sort of, letting themselves sit with the climate disaster isn't grief, but is instead motivation and action and hope, then like, I think we should be uplifting and, and toting that as, as valuable as much as, if not more. Yeah. Yeah. I think we need, I think we need to, to be accepting of all boats, right? We need to be, we need to find, um, we need to find ways to bring everyone into this, into this moment. And it's interesting watching different groups find their ways in. I think this notion is also as well built on the idea that life is wonderful and beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's and, and I think that is uh, and, and but I think I, I think the thing here that I that I'm that I'm interested in that I would get to uh, we can get to in another show because we are running out of time um, is is that we do need an answer to what the good life is. Um, and we do need to find a way to stop decentra- cent- stop centralizing capital um, in a way that sort of, I think, is almost inherent in, in, in our existence, at least in the world that I live in. Um, and, and I think that there's a, a, a lot – I think that's what people are tr- – I think a lot of people are getting at that kind of question in a lot of different directions and where they are in their own stages of grief. Like I don't, I, like, and, I, and I think you've experienced people who, you know, who experience this and then it's like you start a community farm or, or start, start a kindergarten and that's a perfect response. And there are people who want to you know, just, you know, stand in, in blockade a street in front of Bay Street, also a perfectly reasonable response. Um, and we have to – because society exists in multitudes. We have to have – allow people to, to respond in the way that's most authentic to them. Um, and so, uh, we'll, again, we're going to we're come back actually uh, with Gideon Foreman, who's been on a tour talking to talking to students about about the health impacts of climate change. And then the last segment, we're going to swing back into uh, some conversations about uh, the sort of larger framing. Um, so, thank you so much, Lauren, as always. Uh, and uh, we'll go to the music break. Sarah, take it away.
The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported. Our goal to reach minimum solvency is to raise $300 a month. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com for as little as $1. All right, we're now back. I listen to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I am your mostly silent this week tech, Saren Kaster. I'm going to throw you back to the hosts, Stefan and Dave. Take it away. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, we're back in studio. Uh, Stefan Hostetter, Dave Hostetter, uh, and, and Gideon Foreman, um, who... So uh, you, you have a long history in working in, in climate. Um, and so I'm just sort of if curious if you can just going to give the listeners a, a sort of brief overview and, and how you got interested in, in what, you've, what you've done. Yeah. Well, I used to be the executive director of CAPE, the Physicians for the Environment. I'm not a doctor myself, but I ran the organization as ED for 10 years. My board was mostly doctors. And back in the early 2000s, we did a lot of work on closing Ontario's coal plants. As you know, they've now been shut, but it was a really live issue in the early 2000s. Our docs were very concerned because we worked on the intersection of health and the environment, and the coal plants were a, a really glaring example, right? Terrible for human health and also terrible for the environment. So it was a, an obvious, perfect project for us to work on. So we did a lot of work on that. Um, but we didn't really come at it from a climate point of view Interestingly, at first, it was much more about smog days and uh, helping people, you know, with uh, respiratory illnesses. And um, that was really the focus initially. Clean air um, was the focus very much. As time went on, we started to say more and more, you got to close the coal plants also because they're a terrible contributor to climate change, of course. But that wasn't the original thinking so much. But that became it over time. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that's a – growing up, the, you know, smog days were a, exactly. a normal part of summer. That's right. Um, and it's, it's fascinating that, you know, that, uh, that the, uh, people probably joining university now may not even remember that, right? Because once, once those coal plants were gone, it really, really cut back. It was dramatic. It was one of these great, great examples of a really good decision. I mean, when I was younger, there were as many as sometimes 50 smog days in, you know, over the course of a year. And now it's basically zero. Uh, and the closing the coal plants has played a really big role in that. It's not the only factor, but it's been a big factor in that. Yeah, yeah. It's just one of those things that's – every once in a while you get something that just like is – Works almost even better than you could have. Like, yes. like I really, what I remember, you know, tout, touting and being excited about the closing of coal plants yes. uh, one at a time. But I didn't really understand how directly impactful that would be on, it's, you know, on the city's uh, air quality. It, exactly. I mean, we used to say it was like taking six million cars off the road. I mean, it's staggering, and not just for Ontario. I mean, the the amazing thing was was the international significance mm. when. Ontario closed those coal plants. Al Gore came to Ontario to kind of thank the premier at the time personally, and he was thanking her kind of on, on behalf of the global community because we could point to Ontario, an advanced industrial economy, was able to get off coal and do it successfully and still have a strong economy. What a great precedent that was for other countries. Right, yeah. Um, and so, and so you sort of mentioned you had sort of taken that uh, that approach towards, towards coal and other things from a, from a more general perspective uh, Air quality point, Air of, quality view. point yeah. of view. Uh, and then more recently, you've sort of moved a little more into climate and health specifically. Um, and so I'm interested in sort of what, what about that angle that in interests you? Yeah. So for a lot of folks, the climate issue still in some ways is kind of an abstraction. They ask, and understandably, what does it have to do with me? So when we get that question, we find the best way to respond is to talk about climate and health. What does the climate crisis mean for my health? And I've been spending a lot of time in recent weeks talking about that actually across the province. So when we start to talk about pe 
people about that. It's going to mean more flooding. Well, that might mean your basement's flooded, and that could mean mold, and that's a health issue. It can mean destruction of food crops, so that's a health issue. It can mean drought, which is another uh, concern in terms of growing uh, crops. It can mean more mosquitoes, so we're going to have more things like West Nile virus and this sort of thing. When we talk about it through a health lens, people start to get it, and that's crucial. Hmm. And, and and you and you found that um, has that been growing? You know, like like when you say because you've been doing this again for 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 decades now, have you found the that 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 sort of angle has con- like as people's understanding more generally has increased about climate change? Have you found sort of that health uh, angle to persist in value and, and maybe yeah. adapt and change? Y- yes, the health angle has been consistently helpful in mm. getting across the urgency of the climate crisis, yes. Mm. And it doesn't take a whole lot these days with Hurricane Dorian for people to see the health impacts of extreme weather, right? right? When it's leveling in that tragic way that it did, those those communities, um, uh, you, you see the impacts immediately and the health impacts are stark. Yeah, totally. Um, and so you mentioned uh, that you have been sort of touring around. Um, I understand. Uh, uh, wh- where have you been going? What's the what's our, what kind of tour are you on? Sort of what's the yeah. what's, what it's. Been? Yeah. So I work with the David Suzuki Foundation. A piece of our work is to educate folks about the climate crisis. So I've been privileged in the last few months and continuing now to speak to colleges and universities across Ontario, mostly southern Ontario at this point, talking to students, a variety of students, general students, uh, political science students, medical students about the climate crisis, and specifically about some of the things that they can do to address it. Because one of my key messages is the situation is serious, but it's not hopeless. The science says there's still a lot we can do if we act now. One of the key things I've been talking to students about is getting out and voting. Mm. We see the October 21st federal election as a crucial, crucial uh, landmark uh, in terms of whether we're going to be laggards on climate or leaders on climate. We see this as a crucial election. So we're saying if you're concerned about the climate crisis, for goodness sake, get out and vote on October 21st. Yeah, and and so to to I want to focus a little bit in, in on the fact that you've been talking to so many students because you know I um I, I still identify as a, as a as a young person. I remain a millennial, <laughs> uh, but um uh, but I haven't been in university for now uh, a bit, almost eight eight nine years, and so uh, I guess eight years, and so um, I'm curious like you know cause I remember my experience of, of of high school at least included like I don't know maybe maybe a, a month or two about climate change. Right. There was you know you might have gotten a little That's bit. It's a month in, more than I got. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like you know like would a bit of a geography class maybe you know and so I I, I entered university with some understanding, but certainly not um, the the level of understanding that I then gained in university, and even just like as a basis understanding, it, it didn't it didn't factor to they had not yet I think permeated the the curriculum yeah. per se, and so I'm curious sort of like what uh, what are these students how are they how are they how are they engaging with this issue where yeah. where are their heads at yeah so it's really encouraging like when I reach out to universities and small communities and large ones. The first thing is they're usually very happy to have me speak. It's not because of me personally, but Mm. because of the issue. And this is in large places and small places. I gave a talk in Georgian College in Barrie, small community. Uh, They filled a room. Um, And this was on a beautiful June day when they probably could have been doing a lot more fun stuff. Here they were indoors, 30 or 40 of them listening to me talk about the climate crisis, Right. right? I think it's a measure of the concern I came back to Barry a second time for kind of a general community meeting. It wasn't just students. And they filled an even bigger room, a bunch of us, again, talking about the climate crisis and what you can do about it. So the first thing to say is that there's a lot of awareness. 
And that's a really good thing. I find that very inspiring. Partly it has to do with Greta Thunberg and what she has shown that students can do through her climate strikes. Mm -hmm. but, but I think that there is a very high level of awareness and a lot of concern among young people, and that's a very good thing. Mm. And so, and so I, I'm just curious if you can describe a high level of, of what you've been telling them. What is, what's, the, what's the message been? Yeah, so I've talked a little bit about a bit of the science, because Davis Suzuki Foundation is a science-based organization, and we want to get a little bit of the science out. So I talk about that in a way that I hope is accessible, what the scientists are telling us about drought and flooding and heat waves, uh, what the scientific journals are saying. One of the interesting, lesser-known things is that as the temperature goes up, uh, productivity, people's ability to work, goes down. So the Lancet, which is a, kind of the most famous medical journal in the world, did some research and found that in 2017, 150 billion, and this blew me away, 150 billion hours of productive work, of labor, were lost to heat. Hmm. Much of it in the South and much of it in the agricultural sector. The temperature was just so hot that people couldn't work. Right. You can imagine the impact on that, especially if it's in agriculture, on food production, right? If people can't go out and harvest the food, that's going to have a dramatic impact on, on our ability to eat. So I was trying to convey a bit of the science, not from my organization, but what mm -hmm. the scientists are telling us. And then I switched immediately in my talk to what students can do, because again, it's so important that people don't feel hopeless. The si and I can't say this enough, the situation is serious, but it's not hopeless, and there's still a lot we can do. So I talk about some of the things that students can do, some of the lifestyle changes they can make. We talk about eating less meat, we talk about flying less, driving less. But we, of course, say it's not enough just to make lifestyle changes. We need bigger structural changes. As a society, we need to move off fossil fuels. We need to ramp up renewable energy. We need to build out more public transit and more active transportation like walking and cycling. So I try to convey to students as a combination of life cycle, uh, li lifestyle changes, which are crucial, but also systemic changes that we need to make as a society. And then I talk about what they can do specifically as students. So there's a whole student movement now, which is marvelous, didn't exist a few years ago, the, the Fridays for Future movement, where students are getting out and striking. There's, of course, the big date's coming up shortly, September 20th, and then 27th, there'll be a sort of society-wide climate strike. Students are some of the leaders on that, led by Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish woman who's 16 years old, who started the climate strike movement. So I've really tried to convey that there's a lot that students can do as students. And then I conclude my little talk with the importance of getting out and voting. I mean, we're blessed to live in a democracy. It's so important that when we cast our ballots October 21st, we are thinking about the climate crisis. Hmm. And some students haven't voted before. They think, what's the point? And I've tried to talk to them about the importance of that. Right, right. Um, and, and I'm, I'm curious uh, how, the, how the reception has been. You know, what are, how, are they, how are they taking this? Yeah, they, they uh, respond in very sophisticated sophisticated ways. They have, tend to have very good responses and very good answers. Uh, so I was speaking at Humber College not long ago, and some of the students were really pushing me on the lifestyle changes. They were saying, like, why do you focus on that stuff? Mm. It's the big corporations and governments that are to blame for this. What are you telling us to eat less meat and, and, you know, drive a little less? So we had a really good discussion about that. I don't think there's an easy answer. I mean, I think that we need both. We need deep systemic changes, but we also need to make some lifestyle changes. But the students were pushing me hard on this, and they were very critical of the individual choices. So I think that says a lot about them, that they're thinking in a systems approach, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, that, that, that they've moved beyond uh, the sort of the you know the, the idea that you can recycle your way out of yes, this, right? Exactly. Like that you, that there's, That's right. Which was you know in some ways the ways that environmental movement has right. been co-opted in the past has yes. been to sort of transition this idea that mm -hmm. it's been that it's all on you versus That's right. versus a systemic thing. So it's right. it's fascinating. These are people who are you know, 18, 19, 20, right. who are already jumping that 
to, you know, it's, we don't leapfrog technologies. That's right. But what about leapfrogging ideologies? That's right. right. We've already gotten right. somewhere. And yet I don't want to disparage the individual stuff because we don't want people to feel they have no agency. Right. If you're eating less meat and more uh, meat alternatives, that is a good thing. And if you're flying less than you used to, that's a good thing as well. I don't want to disparage that, but it's not enough. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's, there's, it's a, yeah, like we were talking earlier on the show, even just about this balance between trying to, to give people ways to, 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 begin working towards That's it. Right. You know, like even if, if if eating less meat or, or flying is the is your is your way to begin to feel agency, which then hopefully right. we can then propel into exactly. further action. That's right. Then you know then yeah you don't wanna you don't want to sort of say nothing you do is me- That's you, you right. can't you cannot tell people nothing that anything they're doing is meaningless. That that obviously will go south. Yeah, then the people just feel helpless, and and that's not a good thing. That's a terrible place. Right, right. Um, so we are coming up uh, shortly to music break, uh, but I want to give you a chance to sort of I don't know. You've been in this uh, sector for quite some time, um, and uh, I'm curious to sort of know if there's I don't know something that you sort of uh, would would want people to know. You know, like w- like something that you've come across that uh, that often people don't think about, or or maybe just a reiteration of something that you feel really really passionate about over the over your time here, or, or really just sort of you know it, it, like you. you know, we, we have a microphone, we have an audience, uh, and you get a chance to say something to, to theoretically 50,000 people. What, what yeah. would you say? I guess what I would say again is that the situation really is, is serious. I mean, the term crisis is not used idly. The term emergency is not used idly. Even the courts now have, have described the climate situation as an emergency. It, it is that, and the scientists tell us that. But if we just throw up our hands at this point, then things will only get worse. And what the scientists are telling us, uh, for example, Michael Mann, a a famous climate scientist, part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, one of the great sort of scientists on this issue, Michael Mann has said, if we stop the business-as-usual treadmill, that was his term, Mann, if we get off the business-as-usual treadmill, and we really start to move away from fossil fuels, we can prevent uh, catastrophic global warming. That I find very hopeful. Hmm. Totally. And uh, so if, 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 I don't know, if there's uh, people out there who want to book a chance for you to come and talk to some youth, how can they, how can they contact you? Please contact us through the David Suzuki Foundation through our website. There's a contact uh, link at our website, and I'd be happy to speak to your university or college uh, about the climate crisis. Amazing. Thank you so much, uh, Gideon Foreman. Uh, we will be back uh, with talking about George Manbiot and, and Rupert Reard once again uh, and, you know, what the good life could look like. Uh, but for now, music break, Saren. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. And that was uh, very much my musical assessment of business as usual, I think, is what we were going for there. Uh, Stefan and Dave, what do you think of that? Uh, what do you think of what? We were arguing about how I will always jump through people's names. He mumbles through names. Uh, like... Instead of slowly saying their name. So Gideon Foreman Gideon was that person. Gideon Foreman. Thank yeah. You. Uh, Thank you. So we missed your intro because we were arguing about that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were laughing at the, uh, well, I don't know, if you didn't notice a particular flavor to that song than you didn't notice, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, there you go. But you can Google the music video um, if you're over 18. Uh, so uh, it's on YouTube. Uh, we'll, we'll assume that YouTube's algorithm is doing that. Um, can I sneak my thing in yeah, yeah, real quick? It. Okay. So uh, here's the thing. So I felt a little bit embarrassed last week because I made a big to-do about a point I was trying to make. Uh, and uh, I accidentally 
stuck the emphasis of my confidence in the point I was trying to make on a fact that I didn't realize that I'd fudged. Uh, so that's embarrassing. So I wanted to cover that, Abe, just because I apologize for that. Uh, we do try and keep a very high uh, degree of accuracy around the show. And part of the reason why a, an ongoing joke for the program for uh, me is that I keep repeatedly making jokes, which is really more to Stefan and Dave. I apologize. I shouldn't do that on the air. Uh, <laughs> but about how I'm going to keep my mouth shut is because, as uh, you may have been listening, uh, I'm not super plugged into the show these days. I read a lot of the news, but I, I David does a lot of work on preparing notes, and I don't read them. Uh, so I apologize. So A, apology for that. But B, I didn't want the mistake to be lost in the valid point I was trying to make, which was I got... We got distracted by a detail which was inaccurate, and I and I didn't want to lose the point, which I think was both accurate and important, um, which was that as we're now, uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, is doing very well in the polls. There was actually a poll yesterday. A single poll doesn't mean anything, but it's an interesting trend uh, where she's actually dead tied uh, with Joe Biden. Um, and so the the point I was trying to get at is that like. What's really important about the American election right now is that there's two progressives, not just one, in the race. And that does a number of things. One of them is that it actually makes Trump very, very hard for Trump to go after them because he's not good at multitasking. <laughs> and so you might have noticed he hasn't been calling either of them names. He's been very inactive. And I think that's because he's actually confused and not sure what to do when there's two people, not one. Um, and he's good at playing people off each other. So anyway, that's a whole thing. The side point is that as we get down to these two and as two progressive people, either of whom would be fundamentally amazing for the entire world and would have ripples everywhere, there is a dip more people are wondering. And I and I've been asked uh, people who know I read lose a lot what the major difference between them two is. And all the point I was trying to make was was that there is less difference between their policies and more difference between how they want to go about solving their problems. And so. As Joe Biden is losing uh, strength in the race right now, you may start to see the establishment, quote unquote, start to get behind Elizabeth Warren, not because she's less trustworthy, but because the way that she's proposing to solve problems involves less of a fundamental attack on the establishment system itself than Bernie does. So I just think that's the, you know, keeping the, the actual difference between them in mind is less about, you know, one is a real progressive or one is really going to solve climate change and one isn't, and more having to do with just a matter of tactics and how they approach problems. And because of that, the media, and the establishment is going to treat them very, very differently. So I apologize that took more time than I wanted to on both weeks, much less just one. <laughs> but I think that's important as you're going and watching that stuff with relevant to climate change, um, because the media is beginning to do some really funny business with their facts. So anyway, that's the end of my thing. I'll go back to being quiet now. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, I, I think there's. Uh, anyways, well, we could we could do a whole whole show on all and on the American election. At some we point. will just later. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I suspect there won't be a, such an intense Bernie or bust thing this time around. No, well, I, like Warren in the race. Yeah. And I, and I think that, I think that hopefully that we'll be able to see a, a useful transition. And again, there's like a bunch of other things like, you know, Bernie runs as an independent. Uh, although as a fun fact, uh, during the, during the Obama years, the biggest thorn in the Obama side was not in fact Bernie. It was Elizabeth Warren. She was apparently as a Senator, the, the one sort of being wielding her power a little more directly. Uh, to, in what direction? Uh, to, 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 towards pulling, trying to pull him left. Bernie, oh. Bernie was a uh, was a little more um, like uh, this wasn't as combative in 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 nature. Um, in, in maybe because he has been around for forever. Um, but uh, but there's a but yeah there's a there's a, a number of other other things going on there. So uh, we still have about now ten minutes uh, to to cover what I think is is is, is worth it a lot. But there's a lot of new, a lot of information. So let's jump right in. So environment, environmental and political writer George Monbiot uh, recently gave a talk for TED about the need for a new restoration story for our species to rally around. 
These are stories that define a collective existential problem, define the cause of the problem, and then present the strategy that the collective is going to employ to fix things. He argues that this is the most powerful narrative structure in politics, and possibly even a necessary part of all political change. He presents it as, Disorder afflicts the land. It's being caused by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But a hero will rise up to defeat those forces against the odds and restore harmony. He argues that the 20th century was defined by two such stories, both told by economists. The first was told by John Maynard Keynes during the Great Depression. It said, This chaos is being caused by the economic elite who have captured the world's wealth, but the state, supported by working people, will fight those forces with income redistribution and public investment in jobs and infrastructure to restore harmony. The second, Monbiot argues, was told by neoliberal economists like Hayek and Friedman in the 70s, which said, Chaos is being caused by the overbearing state, which has crushed individualism and opportunity, but the entrepreneurs will open up a market, create wealth for everyone, and restore the land. So Monbiot argues that uh, recent scientific findings about human values can give us a new story, since he says they've found that altruism and cooperation are the most dominant and universal human tendencies. He then argues for building, building a society around a renewed idea of the commons, which is neither state nor market. He says, quote, The commons consists of three main elements, a particular resource, a particular community that manages that resource, and the rules and negotiations the community develops to manage it. He describes what he calls a politics of belonging, since both left and right share the values of belonging and community. He thus presents a new restoration story as follows. Chaos is being caused by the atomizing tendencies of neoliberalism that have alienated us from each other, the land, our work, and ourselves, and created a society of loneliness that has devastated our social, political, and mental health. But we will revolt by building rich, engaging, inclusive, and generous communities, taking back our political and economic power and restoring harmony. Yeah, and it's... It's this. If you can watch the the TED Talk, uh, I recommend it. Uh, if you just Google it, it's it's more recent one he released this summer, I believe. And uh, it is to me a, a a the a beginning of a brick that I've sort of been I've been sort of trying to find in some capacity over the past few years um, of this of this uh, connection between um, what what is so clear to me, which is the, 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 the overwhelming usefulness and, um, uh, adv- advantages of living in community, the, the overwhelming, uh, support of, of a better life, uh, of, of community and, and the way that community actually sort of, uh, is a, is a multi-sectoral solution. You know, the, the way that community uh, reduces consumption in many ways um, by allowing you to sort of, you know, share resources rather than all having, you know, to use your own individual resources. by break, the, way, the way resources can be used more effectively when they're held in commons rather when, than when we're, we're held in individualism. At the same time, the way that community uh, is, is a public health benefit. You know, there's there are all these movements right now trying to get people into in, out of their houses and into the world to to, to f- combat this loneliness ep- epidemic that we're experiencing, mm-hmm. and, and how much that you're experiencing people in, in in our societies are are dying younger because they're because they're because they're not around people. You know, wow. the the overwhelming fact that the part of the reason why we're seeing uh, de- uh, this decreasing. Um, 
life expectancy is because more and more people are isolated. You know, the opioid crisis has a significant impact too, but the, the isolation, and if you look at people's expected life expectancies, those of whom who identify that they do not have uh, a, a community or, or a friend group, uh, their life expectancy is dramatically lower. Like community is a public health benefit. Um, and that a community is also an anti-poverty strategy, right? Like it is, it is a way to ensure that everyone gets enough to survive. And so I, I think there's a there's something about the fact that this sort of push towards community is is the is the multi-sectoral solution to to say three uh, overwhelming crises that we're currently experiencing, um, and how it what it does to break down the. Uh, the the sort of the, the the sort of really ingrained belief that 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 the capitalist structure is incarnate rather than sort of moving towards a commonwealth. Um, all of that is what makes I think and to me this this sort of angle and way to talk about it and and way to see ourselves moving forward uh, so compelling. Um, and, you know, and I and I think there's I I I don't think yet I think what we're still missing is a is is what. And how you manifest that, you know, how do you take that fact that we can sort of see community doing these things and, and actually actualize it into the world? Like, how do you how do you throw and build community? Really? That's a, he does have a book. Um, yes. Uh, and, Who and knows what's in it. <laughs> he's, he's many books. He's, you know, he's, he's part of the One specifically about this. About this. It's okay. just a picture book full of graphs. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but this is, this is the thing, right? Like there is this, uh, there's this need to actualization from that. But I do think that's what makes this, uh, so compelling. And the fact that we need a collective story to get us there, I think is, uh, you know, I'm as, as someone who loves story, a little biased towards, but I do think it's valuable. <laughs> uh, but I do want to make sure we at least get to this last little bit of Rupert Reed's story. So let's get there and then we'll. So back to Rupert Reed. I uh, do apologize if his stuff was too um, brutal at the beginning. Perhaps I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you but, need you need a level of reality to get <laughs> to get somewhere. He told he told a story uh, at the beginning of that talk that I was describing, which reminded me of this Monbiot uh, conception. So I've, I'm just going to quote it here. It's uh, a bit lengthy, but here it is. So he said, "Let me tell you a story about a species that was asleep when it woke up." It saw the doom it had created already for so many other species that it had now trapped itself on a path towards, a path of self-imposed death. It saw its own doom, and it trembled in fear, and it wept. But then it realized that it wasn't fully awake yet. There was a further step it had to take to become awakened, to become enlightened. And that was to realize, we're not spectators of this. The story isn't over yet. It's wrong to tell it as if it's over. We can rebel against this doom, against this path to extinction. If we see clearly what we've done, the state we're in, the path ahead, the doom that seems inevitable, well, that seeing is the beginning of the one and only way in which it might not be inevitable. Because we're not spectators. We are agents. We are potential agents of change, and we have no idea what we are capable of until we try. We can rebel against the very predictable results of our present path. If we dare to look the reality of what we've done to Earth, and what we've done to our very climate, in the face, then two things. Firstly, we can prepare for our possible doom, and if we're going to fail to prevent that doom, as looks objectively probable, then we'd better get on with preparing to meet it. And secondly, we can prepare ourselves to seek to give our all to prevent it. It only looks like we're doomed if all we do is look, if we picture ourselves as spectators. But if instead we step into our full power as agents of change, 
capable of beautiful, extraordinary, unprecedented, unknowable things, then objective assessment of probabilities becomes moot. And instead, it's about our freedom to create something new, something historic, something glorious, right in the teeth of the darkness of this time. End quote. But uh, to bring this into a, the, full, the full spectrum monbiot, I would have to add what his you know, actions, solutions would be. Mm. And these would be, of course, to rebel against the government in order to transform democracy into something capable of a radical scaling back of industrial growth and embracing a renewed perspective on what is actually important, community and relationship. Yeah, and I think there's again to get, to get not to harp on this too much, but to to sort of get um, to get back to the sort of original question that we sort of had uh, talking to Lauren about what what the good life is, you know, um, and in the ways that our our brains, uh, at least here uh, in in the West, have been wired towards the concept that the good life is uh, getting enough stuff, that the good life is experiencing the the, the experiencing whatever we want whenever we want it uh and and and, and, the, and the hyper individualization that comes from the concept that 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 is the good life the good life is is individual uh you know if you look at the i was talking to a friend of mine recently and we were discussing um the maslow's hierarchy of needs and in maslow's hierarchy of needs that we all understand the peak of that is self-actualization um, and, and, and she was telling me that that is actually, if you, if you really read into Maslow, that that A, he never made it a hierarchy. He just sort of listed the needs, but also B, that, that when he, as he got later on in life, he actually added to that. And he ble- he found that people who had sort of got reached self observation had then had then be- found themselves left wanting, and then had moved beyond that towards uh, towards a transcendence uh, and an absolution of self, whether it be a- at service to community um, or or something more spiritual. And and to me, it is that it is that fact that last step uh, that. That 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 frees the people who might currently find themselves it not being able to see uh, a way out uh, because of the individualism that we've created as the good life, uh, and and might open up the possibility that we could experience a a, a a changed world where 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 the where the peak was to be at service to the community that you that you that you were, and and it's that last step um, that I think uh, is 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 in some way articulated here. And, and, and I think is, 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 the, is the mind shift necessary to allow us to believe it's possible, I guess is what I'm really trying to say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but we are now running out of show. In fact, we have out of show. So thank you all so much uh, for listening. Uh, this has been The Green Majority. Tune in next week, which will be uh, the 20th, uh, which means it will be the beginning of the, school, uh, of the of Friday's Future School Strike and the week long of climate action. Uh, so check out your local listings for what climate activities will be going on from the 20th to 27th. Very important. Uh, and have a great green weeks, everyone, and we'll uh, see you all real soon.